We who know you delight to rejoice in that reality that this is your world. You created all things. You sustain and rule over all things. You have determined the end uh, even in the beginning. And so we would delight to know that whatever seems to go astray and be chaos around us is not chaos to you. That you will fulfill your plan You are and will build your church. You will establish justice. And one day earth and heaven will be one. And oh, how we long for that day. And as we think about that day and how you've told us various things in your word, uh, Lord, we also know that we're speaking of profound things and that you have revealed to us marvelous things, but marvelous things that... We are to understand, and yet we are to understand in humility because they are deep and wide, and we as your people, even who know you and love you and have your spirit, are struggling together to come to clarity. But what we do delight in, with all of the differences of opinion and understandings of your word in this particular area, we delight in the utterly clear and universal testimony of your nature of man in your image fallen, redeemed in the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God in flesh, guaranteed through his resurrection, and whose return is the hope and the longing of all who know you in truth. And so we delight in these things. We ask your help now, and we pray in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, you came back. That's exciting. Uh, Last week was uh, an introduction to some what are big and complicated uh, topics that we're barely doing justice to, but hopefully well enough to at least uh, make known to us uh, as a group the kind of complexities and ideas and thinking uh, that many of our brethren have, uh, even maybe among our own congregation, but certainly outside of us. So I have to share with you, so I told uh, Trish this morning, I had a dream last night, And it was one of those dreams that you remember. Well, it was dream world, so I'm not going to try to recreate it, right? It's like Alice in Wonderland. But there was one part that was right there at the end, and it was uh, Conrad was there. And Conrad, in his usual uh, exuberant style, was going... You know Conrad is translating into Spanish as we do this. And Conrad uh, said in my dream, I remember he's like... Man, you're killing them. This is, this is boring stuff, man. He said, like, I'm going to hang with you to the end. He says, we're going down together. He says, but, man, you got to change it. That was in my dream, for real. <laughs> and so then I woke up with that. So hopefully, uh, obviously, that's saying what's going on in my own mind, in my own heart. Uh, in terms of really wanting to uh, address these things, at least in a general way, uh, because they are important underlying realities within the church and how we as Christians and different believers, both in our own congregation and in different denominations, think about these things. And so uh, that is the goal. The simple goal in its broadest sense is merely to make us aware and appreciate of the kind of things that we have to think through um, when we think of the church, when we think of uh, Things such as covenants when we think of the end times. And so that, if that is, if it, uh, it makes us aware of things we weren't aware and if it stimulates the desire to think and discuss and to grow, uh, then it was successful. Uh, this time, but also, as I mentioned before, although this is a very broad uh, introduction to these topics, and some things will make sense now, some things will make sense a little bit later, uh, it will provide a framework that will clarify things once we actually get into the text of uh, Revelation, which will be uh, very soon. Uh, And it is there that we'll go into a more detailed explanation and defense of of various aspects of what is being introduced here these last couple of weeks. So we certainly cannot go into those details now, uh, but we will as time goes by, and this will provide somewhat of a framework uh, to do so. Uh, Just to tell you where we're heading, uh, Pastor Mavasso is going to be preaching uh, next week and the following week we'll be out of town in North Carolina when we come back the week after that is we'll do an overview of Revelation we'll consider just very briefly the different ways that Revelation is understood and we'll defend the way that we're going to understand it as a futuristic uh, understanding uh, and then we'll get into the text of Revelation I know, we'll breathe a sigh of relief, all of us. Uh, that's where we've been eager to get to. And so we will, but that will be a few weeks uh, down, down the road. 
And so be praying for uh, Pastor Tim too as he prepares to take us back to the life of Joseph, I think, although I didn't ask him. Uh, Yes, the life of Joseph, which has been just a wonderful study uh, for all of us. Well, I want to begin uh, this week by defining up front, reviewing for us in just a few minutes, maybe uh, five or ten minutes or so, less than ten minutes, uh, reviewing for us the things that we introduced uh, last week, namely uh, the two major theological systems that are identified as covenantalism or dispensationalism. And so just to refresh our memory, I know these are new ideas and new topics to many of us. If, if you're visiting with us this morning, this is a bit unusual. We don't usually step aside from just walking through a passage of Scripture as we are last week and this week, although we are going to look at some passages this week. Um, but it is a necessary, uh, and hopefully it is, I feel it's necessary and hopefully helpful. Let me just remind you, so I did something uh, that as I was talking to different people last week and trying to see what would be uh, the most helpful, one was to actually write things down, present it, instead of just up on the screen. So I did that. Uh, so you have in your bulletin one handout, uh, which has just a few of the, the main ideas and topics that uh, we addressed uh, last week. Uh, We are going to open up and look at several passages uh, this morning, but first let's just again set the the stage by way of reminder. As I noted, the the two theological systems known to us as covenantalism and dispensationalism are essentially the two basic theological frameworks that undergird really Christendom. Uh, So everybody is is at some level and in some way uh, having this as the way that they, one of these systems is how they view uh, the work of Christ in the church and at the end of the age. And there's other things that it uh, 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 has implications for as well. But those are the two uh, main ideas and it's covenantalism and dispensationalism. There are within both of these systems variations. There's a spectrum. And so by whatever is said here, there would be different views in some nuance way, but I hope to at least try to capture the essence of the different systems um, and at least be faithful uh, to that. There is within dispensationalism, and we'll look at some of this historic dispensationalism. There is uh, revised dispensationalism, progressive dispensationalism. There's uh, progressive covenantalism. There is covenant theology in general. There's what's reconstructionism and other variations within that. So it's broad. This is not everything. Even these two systems are not homogenous themselves. There's, there's variety within each one. Uh, That being said, let me begin by way of review very quickly of what covenantalism is or what is covenantalism? What is meant by that? Uh, This is in uh, the handout, a covenant itself. Well, it begins with the idea of what a covenant is. And and here's the way uh, that that could be uh, defined. An unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement agreement between God and man that that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. So as we noted, without getting into some of the other details, it's a superior with an inferior. Sometimes uh, one pattern that's often referred to or what comes from some ancient Near East covenants, a suzerain vassal covenant, which has a a king or a ruler who enters into a relationship with a vassal state. Uh, There's promises of protection, promises of provision, promises of faithfulness on the other side. There's curses and blessings. There's uh, a certain structure that goes to that that's followed actually that we see uh, patterned in scripture. But this is the idea in terms of a covenant. Uh, covenantalism is then a system of theology that's centered around the idea of the covenant, primarily related to God's covenant with man, uh, related to redemption and uh, his purposes for the world. And it's at the very center then of how a covenantalist views the world, these covenants, and, and we'll unfold that a little more. One said it may be argued that Reformed theology, this is in your notes, is covenant, is covenant theology, not because covenant is its greatest truth and central focus, only God is that, but because covenant is the framework that shapes all biblical revelation. So for a covenantalist, they see all of God's work from eternity past to eternity future and everything in between through the idea of covenant. Now, outside of the biblical covenant, there are three primary covenants that are not agreed upon within covenant theology and in the history of it uh, themselves. But nonetheless, there are three basic what are known as theological covenants which shape the framework of uh, this theology. Uh, One is, and this again is in your notes, the uh, covenant of redemption. That refers to the eternal pact between God the Father and the Son concerning salvation. And that is actually... 
uh, this pact, this idea of a promise, this idea of agreement, uh, we see in Scripture, we see in uh, Ephesians, for example, that we were adopted in Christ before the foundation of the world. There was an agreement. The Son, we know in his revelation of Christ, as he, in the Gospels, as we meet with him, was sent from the Father to do the Father's will, which was to die as an atonement for the sin of his people, to be raised from the dead. That is there. The question that sometimes uh, that comes into that is, is this right to give it the formal qualities of a covenant? The, the idea that the promise is there is not in debate. Secondly, is the covenant of creation or the covenant of works. There's other names, but these are primary. Uh, the, it says this, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and to his posterity upon condition of person, perfect and personal obedience. So a covenantalist would look at the account of Genesis 1, particularly Genesis 2, and say that there was a formal covenant there that God entered into with man, wherein Adam was given a command, he was given a promise, he was given curses, and it was a period of time in which Adam was to obey God and with successful obedience would have then entered into and received the promise of life. Now, again, there's a lot of discussion with that, but that's the general, general idea. And we do understand uh, universally that Adam was required to obey God, that Adam was acting as a federal head for humanity, which means then that he was representing mankind. That's why Christ is the second Adam. Again, the question that comes in there in, in this discussion is whether that is properly called a formal covenant. But beside those two things, the one primary covenant uh, that becomes the point of discussion isn't really the first two, it's the third, the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace uh, is defined by one covenant theologian, that gracious agreement between the offended God and the offending but elect sinner in which God promises salvation through faith in Christ and the sinner accepts this believingly promising a life of faith and obedience. In other words, by faith and repentance, by a repentant faith, uh, which is itself a part of the covenant, which is itself is a part of the gift that God gives to the elect sinner as he is determined in that covenant to give the gift of life, regeneration, faith, and repentance, and to assure that what he has promised to them will be brought to fruition, which may namely to be resurrected and with him forever in a new heavens and a new earth. Another describes it in this way. It's a post-fall covenant between the triune God and Christ with the church. With Christ as its head and mediator, it began with God's promise of salvation to Adam and Eve and continued through the family of faith. In this covenant, God promises to be our God and to make believers and their children his own redeemed family with Christ, the last Adam. It's federal representative, head, and mediator. It is the historical unfolding of the eternal plan of God in the covenant of redemption. And so that is the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace is grounded in, to a covenant theologian, the promise or manifest uh, in its first instance in Scripture in Genesis 3.15 where God made a promise after the fall that he would provide a remedy, a solution. What sin, the sin that Satan brought, the ruin that came in through the sin of Adam, one man's sin, therefore death spread to all men for all sin. Death came into the world through Adam and God made a promise that he would overcome the work of Satan and that the one whom he was going to send would be from the seed of the woman, that this one who is from the seed of the woman would be injured by Satan who would bruise him on the heel but ultimate victory depended on God's work of destroying Satan's work and this one from the seed of the woman would crush him on the head which speaks of death a final blow and overall annihilation uh, of the works of Satan and so that is then the promise and that is then defined as the first instance of the covenant of grace and that covenant of grace within covenantalism then shapes every other covenant in scripture. So beginning then with what we would see as the Novaic covenant, then the uh, Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. There are possibly a, a one other in between there, but those are the general covenants. And that they all flow out of this covenant of grace. So there's one overarching plan of God, of redemption, and that defines then uh, all of God's work and all of God's people. That's a general idea. Now, some of the particulars, and, and again, this is not exhaustive. This is just to give some where the, the discussion comes in, is one. Because there is this overarching covenant of grace that is just progressively revealed, uh, 
throughout Scripture. The New Covenant introduces the last expression of that, this, this, uh, the ultimate end of where this is pointing. And that means then that the New Covenant in covenantalism, the, when we read the New Testament Scriptures, that takes a priority in, in how we understand the Old Testament Scriptures. So... Some uh, examples of how that works out is the church then fulfills the promises to Israel. So the church then is the embodiment of true Israel. The true Israel is the church. And therefore the idea of the church encompasses all of God's people in all time. So a covenant listen referring to David would say David was a part of the church. Abraham was a part of the church and so on and so forth. And so they, therefore, all of the references to Israel in the New Testament epistles and Revelation, including the 12,000 from uh, each of the tribes, is actually a reference to the church. It's a symbolic reference to the church. That's, that's some of the details we'll get into down the road. But that's what a covenantalist would hold. All the Old Testament saints, again, are to be understood as belonging to the church. It also holds then within the system that Jesus is right now currently reigning from the promised throne of his father David on the Davidic throne. That he is reigning there right now. I'll mention some more about that later. Uh, but that is the basic idea. Dispensationalism is, and this is a uh, uh, review, Dispensationalism is built on, uh, derives its name from the idea of a dispensation. That is, and this is in that handout, a dispensation is a noticeable era. These are two definitions. When God administers and deals with his creation in a unique way or a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purpose. Uh, some introduce the idea, and particularly older dispensationalists, the idea that it was a time specifically of testing a time where God entered into a, a particular relationship of testing with humanity that they either passed or failed, and of course that they always failed. Uh, and although I would note, and this is not, and I think I put that in the handout, this is not an essential point to dispensationalism, um, but some of the common dispensations what were popularized under someone by the name of Schofield, those are listed there. The dispensation of innocence, conscience, human government, or from Noah, and there's the time periods. Promise, law, grace, and the earthly reign of Christ. Uh, Darby, who is the first to systematize what has been known as dispensationalism, not to come up with the ideas, but to systematize it, uh, as we noted as well, the same with covenantalism. It was just a, a, a little bit earlier. Uh, Darby had these, paradise, the flood, Noah, Abraham, Israel, Gentiles, spirit, and the millennium. So those would be some, there's others, but that's generally just to give you the idea of the way that the concept of dispensation is worked out. Key points of dispensationalism are, and I think I, this is in your handout, uh, are this, basically that scripture is to be interpreted with a consistent literal hermeneutic. Now, we'll get into some of how that works out. It's simply to say that how the Old Testament prophets are to be read is with a consistent understanding of the promise being given to that generation as standing. In other words, that as we understand the promises of a Messiah over a regenerate Israel in the land, in fulfillment of the promise to David, that is to be understood without variation. We'll again build on some of this. But that is one, one tenet. Uh, so it maintains that Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel are, are not fulfilled in the church, but await a future fulfillment to Israel in the millennial kingdom. And these promises are based on the unconditional aspects of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants, reflected as well in the Mosaic covenant and anticipated by both pre-exilic and post-exilic prophets. In other words, those prophets that were given to Israel before they went into exile, and then those who were after they were exiled and in returning to the land. It says another key point is that Israel and the church both participate in the blessing of the new covenant, but Israel is not the church, remains, re, re, uh, retains its identity as national Israel, uh, physical descendants of Abraham, and that each use of Israel in the New Testament refers to national Israel. And so those are some of the main tenets. Now, that's really where we left off, and we have then another question then, or, or uh, a specific example of dispensationalism or tenet is that the relation that which defines the relationship of Israel and the church. Uh, who are then the people of God? That's the question. As already noted, within covenantalism, the people of God includes Israel and the church, uh, or the, those who are identified as the church, which are both Old Testament and New Testament uh, believers. 
in other words, the church and Israel uh, are equal. They are synonymous, uh, essentially. However, for a dispensationalist, and we're going to look at a passage. Don't worry, we're going to get there in just a sec. Uh, a dispensationalist would hold that the church, the, the believers in Christ, participate in which is Jew and Gentile, participate in the spiritual blessings that Christ ushered in within the kingdom of God, that they participate in equal footing with, uh, to Christ based on his salvation, based on, based on union uh, with him. But the church participates with Israel. It does not replace Israel. It does not fulfill those promises and make Israel no longer an issue, but there is still national promises to Israel. Uh, the church does not do away with those. One said this, the identity of Israel does not expand to include the Gentiles. Instead, the people of God expands to include Gentiles along believing Israel. Did that make sense? Let me say this. Again, the identity of Israel does not expand to include the Gentiles, i.e. saying that the Gentiles are not Israel now. It's not, it's not conflating those two, it's bringing those two together. But rather, Gentiles are now included in a broader category of the people of God, okay? They're included in the broader category of the people of God, and yet they're distinct. National Israel, physical descendants of Abraham, and Gentiles, who are also a part of some of the blessings. So that's what it is. So dispensationalists hold then that Israel always refers to national Israel, now let's look at some examples of that and how where the rubber meets the road, right? Because ultimately it isn't whatever system, it's exegetically how do you arrive at it. A system is only as good as its exegesis is faithful and its hermeneutics are faithful. So let's consider this. Uh, the word Israel, just as a point of note, is used approximately 73 times in the New Testament. Uh, two passages in particular are considered by a covenantalist a slam dunks. Let's just look at them briefly. One is in Romans chapter 9 to say that the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, here makes a, a direct equation. Okay, in Romans 9, 6, he says this. Now, remember in 9, 6, Jesus, uh, Paul is beginning an explanation of essentially... The unique position of Israel, but within this new situation where Israel is rejecting their Messiah. And the church, the Gentile church, is growing and expanding and experiencing these blessings of God. And so he's, he's addressing that in his own heart anguish at the fact that his brethren, the Israelites, who had such glorious promises, even in verse 4, adoption as sons. You'll remember that in Exodus 4.22, God calls Israel my firstborn son. And he says, here they have this unique privilege. They had the word of God, the prophets of God, the law of God, the temple and the promises, and they're rejecting it. And so they've... As Stephen said, they've done that as a pattern of their existence in Acts chapter 7. And, and it grieves him. And he says, well, how are we, he's beginning an explanation here in three chapters, how are we to understand that? And in the midst of that, he says in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, it's not because God's promises have failed. It's not because God is somehow unable to uphold his word and to keep his word. No. He says, for they are not Israel, all Israel, who are from Israel. Some of you have the word included, descended from Israel. In other words, they are not all Israel. They are not true Israel. They are not the ones who truly belong to the people of God. So a covenantalist says, well, see, there it is. Israel here is referred to as making reference to the church. A dispensationalist says, no, the clear reference here that Paul is making is distinguishing between believing Israel and unbelieving Israel. That takes up the very heart of his discussion from 9, 10, and 11. More to be said, but I'm just, I'm just pointing out the big, big idea here. Let me let you look, uh, let's look at one other passage. In Galatians chapter 6, and here I'll just make a couple more comments. Galatians chapter 6. Again, the overall context of Galatian is Paul is addressing the church at Galatia. He's addressing particularly some false teaching that had come in. Uh, what he describes at the beginning of the letter is you'll remember another gospel. And this other gospel is from a group known as Judaizers. 
We'll turn to this passage later, not, but the Judaizers are identified in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, as those who are saying that you need to believe in Christ, but you also need to be circumcised, that the law has not been completely done away with, and certainly not the sign of the law. So in order for faith to be real and completed, there needs to be circumcision. And Paul is addressing that and saying, look, if you want to keep one aspect of the law, you have to keep the whole thing. Curses everyone who does not keep everything that is written in the book of Moses, that is written in the law. If you are circumcised, you've been severed from Christ. So he's addressing that kind of teaching. Now, this group who came in had a powerful influence. They were Jews and they are Jews who were saying that Christ is the Messiah. And so powerful was their influence, as you'll remember in chapter two, that even Peter himself was led sway and he started not eating with the Gentiles because he was under the intimidated by these Jews who were coming in, these Judaizers. And Paul had to rebuke him publicly and say, you're denying the gospel if you don't eat with Gentiles. You're denying the saving work of Christ and that they are equally participants in the salvation that is in Christ. So that's the general context. And then he comes into verse 16, ending the letter, and he says this, well, let's look at 15, 16 is what we'll talk about. Neither circumcision, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. So a covenantalist looks at that and says, there it is, case closed, it's done, let's go get lunch. This is Israel is the church, the church is Israel, Israel fulfills what, or the church fulfills what God intended for Israel and now they take that place essentially. Uh, The response to that is, however, that Paul is here referring not to the church, I mean, uh, not equating Israel and the church, but is referring to, in the, the, the phrase Israel of God, to believing Jews in distinction from these Judaizers who were coming in with another gospel and who were outside of the graces and the mercy of the saving work of Christ as Messiah. A key part of this argument uh, hinges on that little word, and. That little word, and, in the Greek, it's kai. And now that word in the Greek language can have a variety of uses. It can mean and, which would be like a simple coordinating conjunction. You who remember your English grammar from grade school. Uh, it's just putting two things together. It can be used as emphasis. It can be used as a kind of disjunctive in the sense of also or whatever. Emphasis as the idea of even. It can be used in a variety of ways. Context decides. So here it says, and upon the Israel of God. And so a covenantalist takes it as a simple and. Uh, Everybody agrees that the them, that the contrast is being made, uh, or those in verse 16 who will walk by this rule and grace and mercy be upon them. The them uh, includes the Gentiles, is referring to the Gentiles. That's generally agreed on. A covenantalist or dispensationalist uh, would be us, would say he's not making a simple equation here upon the church, the Gentile church, and the Israel of God, national Israel, uh, that the term there is to be taken as even, even, uh, even, uh, or excuse me, that's uh, the covenantal. Boy, back up. Take that out of dispensational. Uh, But is uh, is to be taken uh, in this sense as uh, distinguishing between the them and the Israel of God, the true believing Jews outside uh, in contrast to those unbelieving Jews and the Judaizers who were coming in. In this way, it should be taken as and or especially, especially. In other words, actually, I misspoke, forgive me. The dispensational is that it's and, that it's coordinating conjunction and. Be upon them, the Gentiles, and upon the Israel of God. The and there being uh, the true believing Jews, the true believing Israel. So those would be the main two passages, uh, neither of which confirms or, or is a statement quite the opposite. Paul is making a distinction uh, between believing Jews and unbelieving Jews, and even here is making a distinction between the Gentile church and believing Jews as opposed to the Judaizers. Uh, neither of these are an equation of the church with Israel. So then according to dispensationalism, the church began at Pentecost when Christ had ascended back to the right hand of the Father. He received the promise of the Spirit, Acts 2.33, which was poured out on the day of Pentecost, which after which Peter gave his sermon and 3,000 souls were added uh, that day to the church. 
that that is at the beginning of God's particular work as the risen Messiah after the accomplishment of the foundation of the new covenant in the building of his church. It consists of those who are in union with Christ and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, Jew and Gentile together in one new body, Ephesians chapter 2 as well, and primarily Gentile at this point, however, that God is now working primarily in terms of his witness to the world through the Gentiles. That is what Paul refers to in Romans 11 as the time of the Gentiles because Israel has rejected her Messiah. But that in the future, God will turn again to Israel as a nation and fulfill promises that he made to them. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, Paul says in Romans chapter 11. Now turn over to Acts chapter 15. Turn over to Acts chapter 15. And let's just see again how this works out. Now in Acts chapter 15, I, I mentioned this... Uh, I mentioned this earlier in terms of identifying the Judaizers in verse 1. Unless they are those who said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, uh, you cannot be saved. And so this begins a council. And really the, the, the concern of the council is, how, how, what are we to require of these Gentile believers? How are we to understand their inclusion into these promises of God, these promises uh, of salvation in Christ, Israel's Messiah? How are they to live in areas where Jews are? How, how are we to think of them? And so a great discussion arose for, between the Judaizers and then between uh, Peter and Paul and others. And they were essentially saying, look, that God has accepted the Gentiles even as he has accepted Israel. And that we are to accept them as well. And after the arguments have been made, James who is acting here as a leader in this assembly, says in verse 13, they stopped speaking. James answered and said, Brethren, listen to me. Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree. Now he says prophets, plural there, although he's going to refer specifically to the prophet of Amos in chapter 9. We'll go there. He says that the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by thy name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Again, our covenantal brethren would look at that and say, there it is. The church has now stands as the fulfillment of the promises to Israel. And there's a text. Quoting from one covenantalist, uh, he says this, and I quote, The passage from Amos is being fulfilled right now as Gentiles are being gathered into the community of God's people, a clear example in the Bible itself of a figurative, non-literal inter non interpretation of an Old Testament passage dealing with the restoration of Israel. That would be that side. A response to that would be that this is referring not to Gentiles somehow taking over those promises that were given to Israel as a fulfillment of them, no longer, where God no longer sees Israel as a national people that he has uh, made promises to, but rather that Gentiles are accepted with, uh, along with Israel into these promises, these blessings of the new covenant. Let me just give... Take that a little more. If you turn back over to Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9. Now, that's in the Old Testament. Uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Uh, and the minor prophets, which uh, usually if we're looking for a minor prophet, right, we have to flip back and forth and go, where was that again? Uh, some of them are short. Remember, the minor prophets are not, uh, because of the, their message is less important, it merely refers to the size of the book. That is accredited to them. But Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9, he says this. Beginning in verse 10, or excuse me, verse 11. The full account is this. In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David. Remember, this is speak, spoken to Israel, of course. In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes 
Him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved, I also, also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I also will plant them on their land and they will not again be rooted out from their land which I have given them, says the Lord your God. So the full context here is that God is promising to Israel that there will be a time coming in which his blessings will extend out to all of the nations, verse 12, included in this time, ultimately remember specifically to Israel, is that it will also be a time of refreshment and restoration and blessing for you and your land as the people of God. Now, here's what's interesting about that. When James quotes this passage in reference to how the Jews are to understand or how they are to understand the inclusion of the Gentiles into these new covenant promises, he only quotes from verses 11 and 12. He only quotes from there. That this time is coming particularly here in verse 12, where all the nations will be called by my name. He does not quote from verses 13 through 15. Why? Well, again, exactly what has been said. The argument uh, we would, would be because he is identifying a partial fulfillment. The Messiah has come, the Messiah of Israel. He has accomplished redemption. He has defeated death in his resurrection. He is now at the right hand of the Father, waiting for a return in which the restoration of Israel will come. Waiting for a return in which this promise to Israel will be revealed. But that time isn't now. Again, as he'll make the argument in Romans 11, Israel has, for the time being, rejected the purposes of God. God is now turning his attention to the Gentiles. But after the time of the Gentiles is finished, he will again turn to Israel. And then 13 through 15 will be the case. This is not unlike Jesus, if you'll remember, when he was announcing the kingdom in his ministry in Luke chapter 4, and he stood up in the synagogue and he read from Isaiah 61 2. And he said, read in Isaiah 61, from Isaiah 61 2, uh, these words. Let me just remind you of them. Isaiah 61 2. He read that he came, reading in the synagogue, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He stopped there. And then he sat down and everybody was going, isn't that wonderful, these gracious words. Now later, when he talked about the Gentiles, how God, even in the time of Israel's apostasy, showed favor to the Gentiles, not to Israel, that that made them angry. And you'll remember they then wanted to throw him off of the cliff. He's making a distinction here. The time of the favorable year has come. The promise is available for you. Ultimately, you're going to reject it and God's going to turn to the Gentiles, not unlike what happened in your own history. But notice Isaiah 62, he only read half the verse. The second half of the verse is the day of vengeance of our God is coming. The day of vengeance of our God is coming to comfort all those who mourn. In other words, only part of that is being fulfilled now. Right now is the gracious part. The vengeance at the time of judgment is to come. That's very similar to what James is doing here. This, he's quoting the first half of saying, this is what has been started. This is what has been, been begun. This is the part of God's program now that is being fulfilled. The rest will happen in due time. So then, this is better understood as a reference to the promise of Amos and in other prophets as well, as he said prophets, that Gentiles are going to be included in the promises of God. They are going to be included alongside Israel. And this was a constant Old Testament anticipation. I'm not going to go there. Let me just mention one passage uh, that's jumping to my mind. In Isaiah chapter 19, he says, in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be a third party. Israel is a nation. With Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. There was an anticipation that the blessings of God would extend past Israel, but they 
would not replace Israel, that Israel would no longer be a nation, any less than Assyria would still be a nation and Egypt would still be a nation. As a matter of fact, this is also clear in just one more brief passage in Isaiah chapter 2. And again, we're just hitting some high points here. Isaiah chapter 2 says this. Now it will come about. Well, first the verse 1, the word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. Where is he referring to? He's referring to Zion. He's referring to Jerusalem. It was up on a mountain. This is where the temple was. It was where Israel was met to worship. He says, now in these last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will, will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many will say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. When has that happened? It hasn't yet. It hasn't happened yet. It's an earthly blessing. This will come back later. This is what God will do among the nations on this earth, among the nations who are now rejecting him, who at one point will honor him, and in their honoring him, just as Egypt and Assyria will have a highway to Jerusalem, they will do so with Israel, but Israel will have a place of prominence as the one through whom the blessings came. So... In the end, and this is, again, a lot more to be said, but dispensationalism, we, is argued, is more consistent with the actual text of Scripture and Scripture's overall storyline. Uh, I think I have this quote. Let me, let me read it. This is summed up well by one. While the New Testament adds details to the Bible's storyline, it does not change the story. It does not alter the trajectory of what came before Dispensationalists believe the covenants, the promises, and the prophecies of the Old Testament are and will be fulfilled literally through the two comings of Jesus. This includes all physical and spiritual realities along with all particular blessings, Israel and Israel's land, and universal entities, all nations and their lands. So that's a general overview. Um, let's, let's now note briefly the implications for eschatology because that's ultimately where all this is heading. We're focusing on its implications then for eschatology. Okay. Well, the implications for eschatology, uh, while each, as I noted, position has great uh, bearing on the doctrines of the church, ecclesiology, some of you know that term, and the last things, eschatology, uh, we particularly want to consider how it relates to eschatology. Uh, let me begin by simply observing, however, that each of the positions are essentially derive their name or defined by their relation to the millennium, to the millennium. The millennium, for those of you who may not be uh, familiar with this, refers to a thousand year period where Christ reigns with the saints on the earth. It's derived from Ma uh, Revelation chapter 20, the only time that the specific time period of a thousand years is mentioned, and I think it's seven times in those few verses, 1,000 years. It follows the resurrection. It follows his return and judgment. It is a period of time where Christ is reigning on the earth with his saints, and that is a key point we'll look at later. And so that's what the millennium refers to. So what are some of these positions? The first is all millennium. Now, you have a handy little handout. Uh, if you want to look, and this is just a way to visualize it, a way to be helpful. Um, I think it might be up there too. Okay. Ah, there it is. Not that you can see that, but you can see the big colors in the picture. That's enough. Uh, if you started on the second page, I know this is a, the second page, anyway. Uh, all millennialism. You can look at all millennialism. And that's really the major position one of the major positions. And you can kind of see a graph there that's really helpful. We won't go through all of those subpoints beneath, but these are all, I thought, these are all pretty good in a general sense of marking out some of the particulars. But just notice the picture part. Um, I like books with pictures because I get to turn pages faster. I feel like I'm a faster reader. 
But here's a picture. A picture uh, is a, a, way, a helpful way to visualize this. So the first position is all millennialism. Now, if any of you watched that video or any others, you'll know that all millennialists doesn't really like that that title, because all oh, negates millennium. It says, so it's essentially no millennium. But, a, but an all-millennialist wouldn't say he doesn't believe in no millennium. He just does not believe in a literal earthly reign of Christ for a thousand years. That's what's being said. That rather, this reign is uh, not earthly. It's not for a literal thousand years, but it refers to the longer period of Christ uh, in, during the church age. And so that's an all-millennialist. Uh, defined one defined the view this way it's the view that there will be no literal thousand year bodily reign of Christ on earth prior to the final judgment and the eternal state so there will be no literal 1,000 year uh, reign of Christ in his resurrected body over redeemed people on the earth before the eternal state that we go from here to judgment resurrection eternal state it goes on, this one does, and I'm still in the quote. On this view, Scripture references to the millennium in Revelation 20 actually describe the present church age. Now, some within this camp believe that Christ is reigning spiritually in the hearts of his people, that he is on the Davidic throne. His reign and his authority now is in the church in the hearts of his people. Others say, no, that's not what he's talking about. He's actually referring to the saints who have already left this world and are now with Christ in heaven. That's the millennium, those saints who are with Christ, not yet in their resurrected bodies, which, again, is going to present an issue. But those are two ways that it's viewed within an all-millennial camp. And again, the basis of this is that the church has fulfilled the promises for Israel. And so therefore, all of those glorious kingdom promises, Christ on his Davidic throne, the law of God written in the heart, the nation of Israel living in the land with prosperity and flourishing, the, the nations, the land promised to Abraham, the nations streaming to Israel, all of that that's describing the millennial kingdom according to an all-millennial view is now the reality of the church. Well, for some of us, we could see, well, that presents a major problem in how we read Scripture. A major problem. It turns, this is sometimes where you'll hear that from a dispensationalist saying to an amillennialist, they're spiritualizing the promises. What do those mean if it's not land, if it's not people, if it's not a real Messiah and a real body in a real place, ruling over a real regenerate people, over a real nation? What in the world is the lion laying down with the lamb and eating, drinking the wine from your vine and, and having peace with your neighbors? And we were going to add some other things. What in the world does that mean? Is that all spiritual? Is that somehow now? So that is the position is that the church, however, has fulfilled these promises. The Israel as a nation is no longer central to God's purposes. It's now only the church, and all of those things are now to be read as fulfilled in the church. That the earthly blessings to Israel are spiritually fulfilled in the church, a second point. That thirdly, as I noted, Christ is currently ruling from the throne of David. There is no literal earthly reign of Christ on this earth during a millennial kingdom. And so that is the general position. So if you were to look at this, you'd see the cross. That means redemption, the ascension. And so Christ up in the, the top part is Christ, the right hand of the Father. Uh, the bottom part is the church age, which includes what is also known as the tribulation, which means there will be suffering and difficulty because of the gospel. Uh, generally, an all-millennialist will hold that things are going to get progressively worse before the judgment of Christ, that there is going to be a progression of the influence of sin over the earth. And at that time, as you see that, that the second coming of Christ will come, that's the final judgment. There will be one resurrection, a resurrection of the righteous, a resurrection of the wicked. That resurrection of the wicked will then move into the great white throne judgment in which all of those who are outside of Christ are thrown into the lake of fire which burns forever and ever. And then there is the coming in of the new heavens and the new earth where God's redeemed in resurrected bodies reign with him forever. No millennium, no promise to Israel, no Christ on the earth, none of those things. That's the all-millennial view, essentially, in a general sense. Uh, next is a post-millennial, and this is just a version of it. And so if you look down, that's that. The post-millennial, post means after, right? And so after the millennium. And so they would hold, similar to an all-millennial, that we are currently in the millennium uh, and that 
instead of things getting worse, things are actually going to continue to get better and better. And so you can see that there. The orange there is the church age. There's an arrow going. Things gradually improve. And eventually things will improve. And again, if you watch that, Doug Wilson uh, defended this. If there, things will improve to this age where it's just going to be a glorious kind of kingdom. Now, what marks that kingdom and what it's going to be, who knows? God knows. We'll know it when it happens, I guess. And then it's going to be for a reign, uh, a time of righteousness and flourishing and blessing on the earth, after which the earth is essentially prepared for, for Christ to come and to execute all that he intends to do. There's the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked and the final judgment and so forth. But that there will be a dominant period of time on the earth where righteousness and the influence of the gospel prevails and that we are now currently in that stream. We're heading to uh, that end. One defined it in this way, and I quote, of post-millennialism. It's the view that Christ will return to the earth after the millennium. One went on to say, described it, in this view, the millennium is an age of peace and righteousness on the earth brought about through the progress of the gospel and the growth of the church. This view recognizes that there is a continual struggle, that it's not going to be easy, it's not going to be a steady stream, that there is light in darkness, that there is the people of God among the enemies of God, the truth, and that in this progress, in this adventure, in this increase of the gospel influence, there will in fact be struggle, there will be martyrdom, there will be persecution, there will be, there will be opposition, but that the overall trajectory of the gospel and the work of God is going to be to an ever-expanding global influence of the gospel where peace and righteousness will prevail and there'll be a glorious golden age that the people of God then enter into as the dominant. And so this is, we had an amen, one amen from it. And I want it to be true. That would be nice. It would mean less suffering and more success. Um, However, can't quite get there. Post-millennial, but that is post-millennialism. But, uh, but again, as you saw that, there are strong arguments to be dealt with in all of these positions. Um, this view recognizes so a continual struggle. Uh, a primary text, obviously there's more, but one primary text that illustrates this would be from Matthew 13 from a post-millennial view is that the seed. There, there's a seed, the mustard seed. It starts small, but its influence continues to grow. And the mustard plant continues to grow to be one of the largest plant or the largest plant in the garden. The birds of the air come and rest in it. It's like the leaven that's hidden in the pack of dough. And as the leaven is put in, that would be the gospel. That would be the church with the spirit. And as it lives in the earth, that that influence continues to spread until the whole lump is leavened. And so that would be an illustration within a post-millennial view. Obviously, a lot more to be said about that, but let's go. And so here you can see that in the uh, the illustration. If you flick back over to the first page, this is a pictorial view then of another side of premillennialism. Of premillennialism. Premillennialism is essentially this, these millennialist views. Essentially to say that it recognizes an earthly reign of Christ sitting on David's throne over a regenerate Israel and with Gentiles. Again, there's, that's a general sense is that there will be a reign of Christ on the earth and that Christ, it will happen after Christ returns. After Christ returns. And that at the end of this millennium will then come the final judgment. That will then come the final judgment. One defined it in this way. Premillennialism, and I quote, is the view that there will be a thousand-year kingdom of Jesus after Jesus' second coming, but before the eternal state. Another said it, put it in this way. It's a term that includes a variety of views having in common the belief that Christ will return to the earth before the millennium. So that's the general idea of those who hold to a pre-millennium point of view. The defense of that is essentially that Israel still awaits promises given to them as a nation while God is presently working through the church in the time of the Gentiles. That the earthly blessings promised combined with spiritual realities of the kingdom as revealed in the promises are yet to be fully realized and that Christ's reign on the throne of David on earth for 1,000 years is necessary to complete God's purposes stated going all the way back to Genesis 1 and Psalm 8 
namely that man will reign on the earth, that there will be a throne over the nations. So one of the arguments is of premillennialism is that there are realities in Scripture when we put Scripture together that cannot, that are not fulfilled in this age and that are not indicative of the eternal state and cannot be regulated to merely spiritual blessings. Let me give some examples. Just very, very briefly. I mean, this, this covers a lot, but let me just give you some that we're familiar with. In Isaiah chapter 11, the Messiah is going to come. Well, actually, backing up to Isaiah chapter 9. There's one who's going to come. This one who's going to become is going to be marked by a throne. He's going to establish justice and righteousness. From then on, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. There'll be no end to the increase of his government of peace on the throne of David. In other words, this son is going to come, this promised Messiah, and he will have a throne. It will be a throne among the earth. And on this throne and his kingdom will be marked by justice and righteousness over all of the nations. He says in chapter 11, as he expands this more through the shoot of Jesse, he talks about the particular character of this Messiah who's coming. He will be filled with the Spirit. He will be wise. He will execute with perfect justice. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And then he describes another aspect of this kingdom that this one will bring. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion, and the fatling together. A little boy will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw. A nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. In other words, let's just make this one observation. This is this earth blessing. It's this earth. It's associated specifically with the presence of this Messiah. This Messiah who was already anticipated to establish his throne here on the earth, over the nations. It is hard, just as an observation, to understand how this is fulfilled with the presence of the Messiah in heaven now. So they will not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the people and his resting place will be glorious. And so the question is, when? When is that going to happen? Is that happening now? Is that the eternal state? Here's another example, just again briefly. In Isaiah 65, Mixed within the promises of this new coming creation, there is also this other period that's described in this way. Verse 19, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. There will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping, the sound of the cry. There will no longer be in it an infant, implied lives a few, but an infant of days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100 and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit and they will not build and another inhabit they will not plant and another eat for as a lifetime of the tree so are the days of my people a distinct period of time who are going to live under these conditions and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands they will not labor in vain bear children for calamity they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them And again, the question is then, is that the eternal state or is that the present church age? Is that referring to all peoples? When is this going to happen? Or do these not really mean vineyards and planting and bearing children and that there will be death, but it will be in conditions very different from our own time because these conditions will have an exceptionally long period of life on the earth. And so forth. So the question then is when are these things fulfilled? Or are they not really earthly fulfillments? Do they mean something else? Or are they the eternal state? But then what does he mean by death and vineyards and planting and the nations coming and bearing children? So you can see where some of the discussion lies. So if we have then here historic premillennialism, this is one of some premillennial views. And so you can see the chart there. Historic premillennialism definition is this. The view that Christ, and I quote, will return to the earth after a period of great tribulation and then establish a millennial kingdom. At this time, believers who have died will be raised from the dead and believers who are alive will receive glorified resurrection bodies and both will reign with Christ on the earth for a thousand years. That's 
what's known as historic premillennialism. There's not a rapture before the tribulation and those type of things. That's one of the things that distinguishes it. So that is the idea then, and you can see it there, that there's a church age. It'll move into a period of great tribulation. The rise of evil will ascend, and at the end of that period of time, determined by God, Christ will come. There will be a resurrection of the righteous, the Old and the New Testament, and then there will be a reign of Christ on the earth, on the throne of David, over the conditions that some of which we just described, 4,000 years at the end of which will come the final judgment of God and eventually the entrance into the new heavens and the new earth. Lastly, for time's sake, there is then the futuristic dispensational premillennialism, uh, referred to on this chart as dispensational premillennialism. I say that three times fast. So dispensational premillennialism. Uh, that, by definition, is simply is the view that states that Christ will return for his church before the tribulation as stated to the Thessalonians, for example, with his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead who rescues us from the wrath to come. And at which time the dead in Christ will rise first, be with the Lord in the air. Notice it's in the air. And that there will be a period of seven years of particular divine judgment from God, the great tribulation, one aspect of the day of the Lord. There's others. And that it will be a time when God, according to his plan, lets Satan and his kingdom have its greatest rise and control over the earth, at the end of which, determined by God, he will destroy Satan and all of those who are a part of that kingdom, the great horror of Babylon. He will return, and at that point, there will be a resurrection, and there will be establishment of his kingdom for a thousand years at the end of which, during which Satan is bound, at the end of which Satan is loosed, we'll talk about all these things in detail later, that he is loosed and that he deceives the nations, those, are those who are in the millennial kingdom, as referenced by Isaiah and other passages as well, Zechariah 14 and others, where there is, during that time, those who come into the millennium who will bear children, these children, many of which will be unregenerate even during this time, and will be ultimately deceived by Satan, and then a judgment from heaven, and then the great white throne judgment in the eternal state. So that is a dispensational premillennial view. There are different views of the rapture within this, as you know, some pre, mid, and post. In other words, some say the rapture will happen at the beginning of the tribulation, that it's the rapture, then the tribulation begins, it marks it. Some say in the middle, when the rise in Revelation 13 of the Antichrist, and it's the great persecution, and some say it's at the very end, the saints are raptured up, they meet the Lord in the air, and then immediately return. So those are all different views, and really all I'm doing is uh, laying those out. So those are the various views. We'll see how this applies to Revelation when we get to it. But let me do this. And this actually is in your notes as well. And this is what we're going to end on. I want to briefly just reference, so you know at least where we're coming from, uh, the statement of faith of Newtown Bible Church, which is the framework out of which we understand. And again, it will be defended in detail as we go. That Christ will return personally and bodily before the seven-year tribulation to translate his church from earth. Between this event and his glorious second coming with the saints, he will reward all believers according to their works, 2 Corinthians 5.10. That the tribulation immediately following the rapture of the church from the earth, the righteous judgments of God will be poured out on an unbelieving world. These judgments will be climaxed by the return of Christ in glory to the earth, and this period includes the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. That the second coming, after the tribulation period, Christ will come to the earth to occupy the throne of David and establish his messianic kingdom. At that time, the Old Testament and tribulation saints will be raised and the living will be judged. That the millennial reign, Christ's messianic kingdom, will last for a thousand years on earth. During this time, the resurrected saints will reign with him over Israel and all the nations. This reign will be preceded by the overthrow of the Antichrist and the false prophet and by the removal of Satan from the world. The kingdom itself will be the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel to restore them to the land which they forfeited through their disobedience. The result of their disobedience was that Israel was temporarily set aside but will again be renewed through repentance to enter into the land of blessing. And our Lord's reign will be characterized by harmony, justice, peace, righteousness, and long life and it will be brought to an end with the release of Satan after which there is the judgment of the lost. 
Following the release of Satan after the thousand-year reign of Christ, Satan will deceive the nations of the earth and gather them to battle against the saints at Jerusalem. At this time, Satan and his army will be devoured by fire from heaven. Following this, Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire, and Christ, who is to judge all men, will resurrect and judge the great and the small alike at the great white throne judgment. That is of unbelievers' resurrection. This resurrection of the unsaved judgment will be a physical resurrection. Upon receiving their judgment, they will be committed to an eternal conscious punishment in the lake of fire. An eternity at the end of this. After the close of the millennium, the temporary release of Satan and the judgment of unbelievers, the saved will enter the eternal state of glory with God. The elements of this earth will be dissolved and replaced with a new heaven, a new earth, where only righteousness dwells. Our Lord Jesus Christ, having fulfilled this mission, will then deliver up the kingdom of God to the Father, so then all spheres, the triune God, will reign and be obeyed forever and ever. What a glorious hope we have These are the promises and the truths that we rest on. And I will say this, no matter which position someone takes, we all end up in the same place. That Christ will be glorified. That the living will be judged. That there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. That those who belong to Christ by his eternal mercy and sovereign grace will forever worship him, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and live in his presence in perfect harmony, peace, and joy, and love forever and ever and ever without end. That is a hope that we all, as Christians who are true Christians, share together. And in, in an email exchange uh, on this, uh, I had mentioned is uh, talking about this is that you know we'll have plenty of time to talk about these things uh, in eternity. And then I promised them I wouldn't gloat, <laughs> and they're thinking the same about me, no doubt. But these are important discussions. But we, again, we do them as brothers, and we do them in sisters in love. Well, with that, do we we have a closing hymn, John? Do you have a song? And he'll close us in a word and in prayer.